This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. Now that I know Junior Johnson wants to hire me, i got to figure out how to get out of this contract. And so Junior had hired the enemy. And so when I go in, it's hostile. 
I told Bill one time, I said, Bill, just give him credit for the win. Give it to him. I don't really care. It doesn't really matter to me. He doesn't get out of my way. I'm putting him in the fence. And Junior came on the radio and he said, boy, you wouldn't put a piss in in the fence. Today, NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past. That's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, yesterday, there was this strange sighting down in <laughs> South Carolina. There were cars going around in circles at a high rate of speed. What was that, man? <laughs> well, believe it or not, it was a uh, NASCAR Cup race at Darlington, and probably the most unusual Cup race we have ever seen. It's eerie, Rick. No cars in the infield. For fans, no fans in the grandstands. Blake Shelton had a great line about it. He <laughs> said, it, "He said it was great to see NASCAR back in action. Those grandstands look like a Luke Bryan concert." <laughs> <laughs> so I think the race came off without a hitch. I really do, and I'm hoping that when we move to the next race, which is which will be Tuesday in Darlington, and then the Cup race Wednesday in Darlington, things go just as smooth. I think NASCAR and Darlington deserve credit for a job well done. As different as the circumstances were, the no fans and the mass in the infield and the social distancing and everything, I thought it was just cool to see cars back on the racetrack, going in the heat of competition, doing their pit stops, racing for position. That was a little bit of a relief. That was, yeah, absolutely. That was good to see. As the race went on, the racing action itself attracted the most attention. People sort of forgot about it. I know I did. Forgot about the fact there was nobody in the grandstand. Just watched the action. That's what we wanted to see. Steve, before we get into the episode this week, in launching our YouTube channel and trying to figure out how to navigate those waters, I have been absolutely amazed at some of the channels that there are out there. We went over a 1,000 subscribers recently, and I was so excited about that. But then... <laughs> you have so many other channels that have so many subscribers and they have absolutely pro quality videos. And one of those incredible channels is the iceberg. And this week, Steve, we have Jarrett Lundberg from the iceberg along for the ride. And hopefully we will be able to soak up some of his expertise. Jarrett, thank you for joining us this week. Well, thanks for having me on. Congrats on a thousand. That's a big, big milestone. <laughs> well, listen, if you could give one piece of advice to a fledgling YouTube channel like ours, what would it be? Uh, I think the, the big one is not to get too caught up on the numbers. That's actually the mistake that I kind of made when I was starting to come up a little bit as I was trying to compare myself to other channels. Like, like my friend Eric, uh, for example, he's right now has, I think, like 100 and 1,514,000 subscribers. Um, and sometimes I have to remind myself, okay, don't compare yourself to this channel that is 10 times your size. Like, <laughs> put it in perspective, man. And, and, and that's, that's really the big one for me is just not to get too caught up on the numbers. They're important. But at the end of the day, like having fun with it and liking what you do is a lot more important. Yeah, Jared, I sort of agree with that. And I'll tell you what, I, I have been to your site and checked out your content. And it's no wonder you have so many subscribers because you do excellent work. And as an aside, may I say, uh, I don't know how to phrase this, but 
when you did base on Teresa Earnhardt, <laughs> you were brutally honest, and that's very good. Well, thanks. I um that that's definitely the one that everyone knows about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everyone like they go to my channel and 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 they and they see that one. I remember like I've been able to, I've been lucky enough to be in the garage a lot in the last year or so and it kind of scares me how many people know about that video cuz I'm like, "Oh boy, like <laughs> I I've, I've heard positive and negative reviews back and forth about it but it's one of those things where it's like i did not realize just how far that video went jared how did you get started with your channel and more importantly how did you come up with the name the iceberg okay i think i'll, I'll cover the iceberg one first um that one was actually iceberg was my nickname when i played football in middle and high school um my coach could never remember my name. He could just remember the bird part. So he was like trying to remember, trying to remember, trying to remember. And I, w I think I was like sick for a practice or a game. Uh, I had like a, it, it was like a really bad cold. I ended up getting actually more sick from it. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't just like, oh, I was being a wuss about it. But he, I was like, I think I got like a really bad cold or something. You know, it's, I might need to take a playoff. He's like, oh, all right, then iceberg. And that just stuck from there. Uh, <laughs> it, even to the point where I remember my friends in high school, their contact name for me was iceberg. Like people just started calling me that. And so I put it on this channel back in 2015, I think is when I made it. And originally it was not supposed to just be for anything. It was supposed to be just a channel that I threw whatever, you know, I recorded that day or that month or whatever, very informal, nothing very professional whatsoever on it. Um, when it comes to getting on the path I'm at now, I really thought back in 2017 or so that it might be something I wanted to do. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. Uh, <laughs> I even at one point, thank God I did not, thought about even dabbling in politics. Thank God I didn't. <laughs> 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 but 2017, you know, for a lot of people remember that year is the year that Dale Jr. Uh, announced his retirement. And I was a big, big Dale Jr. fan growing up. I mean, ever since I was seven years old, watching races in the garage with my grandpa, I was just a big junior fan. And towards the end of the year, I felt myself sort of falling away from the sport. I wasn't liking a lot of the changes that were happening. I wasn't liking kind of the direction it was going in. I didn't like how it was always cast in a bad light in the media and stuff and just all those things together was making it not as fun for me and then with my favorite driver retiring i'm like oh great it's going to get even worse so i thought going into 2018 i'm going to try this i've always wanted to try youtube uh, i'm going to try and make maybe a podcast or something which uh ended up working out pretty good um and i'll just go into it with a fresh look at it and with that podcast i met a lot of people a lot of really close friends and it really just sort of rejuvenated my love of the sport. And from there, it just has built on itself. And I've gotten to see it from different angles and really appreciate a lot of stuff that I took for granted before. Um, just with how like behind the scenes NASCAR is and, and how much work there is to put on a race each weekend. But that was really what got me into where I am now is that I wanted to stay involved in the sport in some way. And I thought that this was like my last great effort for it. If I couldn't like it after trying to cover it, then I, I don't know what I would do. Um, but luckily I don't have to, to find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, listen, Jared, we are pretty informal here on the show, so feel free to jump in and comment, whatever. Tell us we're stupid or off track or whatever. Steve does it to me all the time. So this week, (laughs) (laughs) Steve, last week we talked about Daryl Waltrip and some of the controversies that he was involved in early in his career. But this episode, he has to get out of an ironclad contract with Diegard, and it winds up costing him dearly to go drive for Junior Johnson. He has the best years of his career with Junior, wins all three of his championships in the 11 car. But then the relationship kind of cools, and he gets an offer to go join Hendrick Motorsports. So this is a pretty packed episode, and he's got some pretty spicy things to say. Absolutely. The uh, relationship he had with Dagard that deteriorated and forced him to want to get out of his contract was a very, very testy time for him. I think he learned some lessons during this time, but it was really a very difficult time, especially when he had Junior Johnson waiting on him. Had to be tough. And we also get into the whole Big K parking lot issue. (laughs) (laughs) And DW claims that he was misquoted. It was taken out of context, whatever. But if you read the rest of the story... Uh, he was pretty peeved. And to be honest with you, I I don't know that he didn't have a right to be upset because if you get out of a car, you've been in an accident and people actually cheering the fact that you've been in an accident before they know whether or not you're okay. Yeah. I I don't know. Uh, There's just something about that that just doesn't ring right. That doesn't sit well with any driver. It can't possibly. I mean, like you said, Nobody knows if you're hurt or not. All they know is you've been in an accident and all you hear is cheers. Come on, man. That's not right. Then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the December 17th, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene. Uh, Last week, again, we talked about a scathing column that Rod Griggs wrote about Daryl Waltrip. And this week, it's the exact opposite. Daryl was in New York for the Winston Cup Banquet. And the Our Opinion column basically said that he was the right person at the right time to be in the spotlight in New York City. Well, you have to remember that as much as everybody talks about Daryl being sassy and cocky and everything else, he was a very competent speaker. And at the time of New York that well, he was on the rise. He was the right man for the job for two reasons. Well, number one, he was the new champion from a new era beginning in NASCAR. And number two, hey, he knew how to speak. He knew how to court people. He knew how to draw their attention. So being that person in New York to speak for himself and for NASCAR was perfect. Jared, what's your background with DW? How far back do you go with him? I can't say that I'm uh, an expert for sure because that I've grown up in the 2000s and, and 2010s. But I guess what I like to do with a lot of the the uh, older drivers to sort of connect them with modern ones. And I always sort of connected DW with Kyle Busch in the sense that very opinionated, uh, very aggressive, extremely talented. Um, and, and so like, for instance, I think I was a week or two ago, I was watching the 1986 Richmond race between him and Dale Earnhardt at the end there. Yeah. And it was just amazing to me how aggressive and how close he could stay to him without taking him out. I could tell that he didn't like, he wanted to kind of get him out of the way, but not take him out. And so 
I can't, again, I can't say that I have a ton of experience and expertise on him, but I, from everything that I've watched of him, when I watch old races and when I see what other competitors are saying, that he's, he's extremely aggressive and extremely opinionated. So basically everything that we love about NASCAR drivers. Well, we're certainly no experts either. We just pretend to be. <laughs> so fake it until you make it, buddy. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. This week we have new Patreon support from Bill Stripling, Chase Whitaker, otherwise known as Too Much Country on Twitter, and also Dave Damboys. So Bill, Chase, David, thank you so much for your support. It means the world to us. It helps us keep doing what we love to do here on the podcast. So support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, support Brian Kelb. And on Patreon, you can support us at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast or on PayPal. If you'd rather just do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. In 1980, uh, you know, it was my last year to drive for Die Guard. And uh, I was so, I never, I don't, I don't, I can't tell you how excited and how humble I was that Junior Johnson wanted to hire me. And, and you know, Kale and I were not the best of friends always. Uh, we were buddies, but we weren't friends. I'll never forget in 1980. And this is bad news. I just signed a three year extension with Digard. Kind of didn't really have any options. So uh, that reminds me of what Kenny Schrader told Carl uh, Edwards when Carl was going to go to ra- drive for, for Roush. So Carl calls up Kenny and says, Kenny, I just don't like this contract. It's all one way. It's all Jack. And I, I, I just don't know what to do. And Kenny said, thought about it. he said, let me ask you, let me tell you what you need to do. Lay that contract down beside the other one you have. Well, I don't have another one, Carl said. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I was. I didn't have any options. So I signed a three-year deal to, to, to drive for Diegard for three more years. And then all of a sudden, here comes Kale, puts his arm around me, says, I'm going to tell you something. Don't nobody know this but you, and I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm leaving junior at the end of the year. I thought, are you kidding me? He just won three championships, the best car in the sport, and you're leaving him? Anyway, he told me he was leaving. He said, and guess what? Junior loves you, and he wants to hire you. So I'm just giving you a heads up. So, I mean, I'm thinking, this is the greatest day of my life. No, this is the worst day of my life. <laughs> what am I going to do? I just signed a three-year deal with Digard. What am I going to do? So well, can I would, you, can I you tell your there. side? Can you tell your side that the Digard demands upon you to hold you to your contract and how you got out of it? Well, it, it was – it was amazing. So now that I know Junior Johnson wants to hire me, I got to figure out how to get out of this contract. Well, I, it was Bill Gardner, again, a businessman, a smart guy. He, he, he wrote the contract. It was, there was no way to get out of it. I was an unknown commodity. He couldn't put a price on my ability, blah, 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 blah. And so I take this contract and I, I, I shopped it around to several different attorneys. and said, man, you're, you're, you're just screwed. Uh, you know, you're not, you're not going anywhere. I said, dang, what am I going to do? So a friend of mine, uh, Dave Alexander, big attorney here in Franklin, was handling a big case. It had a railroad explosion up the road there, Waverly or somewhere, and he was handling that case. 
And a friend of mine said, go see Mr. Dave. If he can't get you out of this contract, nobody can. So I go down to Mr. Dave's office. He's here in Franklin on the square. I walk in and we talk and I show him a contract. He said, yeah, it's a pretty tough contract. He said, but I ain't got to, I, I, I don't have time. I'm, 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 I'm up to my neck in, in this uh, lawsuit and I, I don't have time. He said, but my son-in-law who just moved to town, uh, let me, you, you go work with him. And if he needs help, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be nearby and maybe he can help. So his attorney's name was Ed Silva. And Ed and I have been friends ever since the day we met. So I go in, Ed's working in a broom closet. I mean, just out of law school. He hadn't had any, any big cases. And I have this contract and he's looking at it and he says, I don't know how we're going to do it, but I'll get you out of this contract. And lo and behold, he figured out a way and we got out of the contract, but it cost me $325,000. The reason it cost me $325,000 was it's $100,000 for each of the three years I just agreed to. So that was $300,000. And the $25,000 was just about enough to make me want to hurt somebody. We're in the office, $300,000 check. Give to Gardner. Ricky Rudd's waiting out in the hallway, by the way. I give Gardner the check. And he said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're, you're a little short. I said, you, what do you mean a little short? Are you in the bud shootout? Yeah, I'm in the bud shootout. How did you get there? You got there in our car, right? <laughs> said, right. He yeah. said, pay 50000 to win, and I want my half now. He said, because you'll probably win it, which I did. But that's how I ended up with – Three hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. I walk out, and I'm—I mean, I'm free. I'm, I can go drive for Junior now. And Ricky Rudd sitting out in the hallway. I said, I walked out and I pat him on the back. And I said, "Good luck, brother. You are in for the ride of your life." Daryl, the grass isn't always greener, but for you at Juniors, it most certainly was. You, yeah. nineteen eighty-one and eighty-two, you win twelve races each year and the championship. What was your relationship like with Junior those first couple of years? Well, I was the enemy. When I went to drive for Junior, <laughs> I was not – I would not – I mean, Junior loved me because, yeah. you know, Junior liked somebody. He liked a winner. And uh, I'd proven that I could win. So, Junior Junior, Junior loved me. But Tim Brewer and that whole crowd, Harold Elliott and all those, those guys that were up there, uh, I was the enemy. And so, Junior had hired the enemy. And so, when I go in, it's hostile. Uh, you know, they're not that excited about me being there. Bill Allman, one of Junior's longtime employees, wouldn't even talk to me. Uh, and finally, I mean, I, I just, I don't know what I was going to do, but, uh, you know, we're getting ready to go to our first race. I think it was Riverside. And uh, Brewer was there, and Brewer didn't like me. And uh, it was just, it was kind of uncomfortable. But uh, I'll never forget, we went to Riverside. I won that race. And uh, then we got ready for Daytona, and we were working on these. It's, remember, it's the year they downsized the cars. Went from the big Monte Carlos to the little Buicks and all those. We had a Buick. And Brewer's working night and day building cars. And, I, and I'm in there with him. I mean, I, the one thing that you have to ask anybody that's ever worked for me or worked with me, I don't ask them to do anything I won't do myself. And so if we're going to stay up all night and work on the car, I'm going to stay up all night and work on the car with you. I don't, may not be able to do anything. We'll go get some coffee and some donuts. But uh, you're in, I'm in. And that kind of broke the ice. And the last guy was Bill Allman, and Bill was like an old old guy, ground cylinder head, been at juniors for years. And he talked with, oh, God, I love you. 
and uh, he drank a lot of moonshine, really strong moonshine. And so Brewer in Wilkes County, like, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of people correcting. I don't know for sure. Anyway, uh, Brewer came to me one day and he said, "Things are going pretty good." He said, "But if you're going to make it around here, you're going to have to get Bill on your side." He said, "Cause he he kind of rules the roost." So you need to go in and talk to him. It's all right. So I had a cup of coffee and a styrofoam cup. And Bill's back in the motor room. I go in the motor room. He's back around on a set of heads. He looks around me and says, ah, so you're the SOB that's going to take Kale's place, huh? I said, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think we can do a lot of good. And I think we can win some races. And uh, looking forward to working with all you guys and uh, blah, 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 you know, trying to be a diplomat. He says, uh, you ever drink any moonshine? <laughs> no, no, can't say as I have. He said, let's have a, let's have a, let's have a, a shot. So he opens up his toolbox and pulls out a fruit jar. I don't know what it was. It looked like it was clear. It was clear. And uh, I dumped out my coffee and I said, here, just dump it in this coffee cup in the styrofoam. And so he dumped some in the star in the cup. And man, I smelled it. I said, oh, knock your socks off. So I was just about ready to take me a little sip of it, and the bottom of my cup fell out. <laughs> <laughs> how strong! That's how strong it was. It ate that styrofoam cup up. Well, that actually turned out. It turned out to be a good thing because me and Bill both thought that was the funniest thing we'd ever seen. He laughed, I laughed, and he said, "I'm gonna give you your own trial." He said, "We'll see how you do." And then Bill and I became great friends. That was the thing about I, when I went up there. It was kind of hostile. But I wasn't there very long until I made everybody there was my best friend. And we all became buddies and we really worked well together and Floss and Junior. And uh, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I'd never been in a place like that before. They would show me what they were doing to the motors or to the cars. And I'd say, well, no wonder I couldn't beat you. You know, you guys just had a lot of things that we didn't have. Junior was in with Chevrolet and they were getting stuff all the time. And it was just a... Uh, it was it was a it was a playground really for me. I I'd never been in a place like that, and I loved every minute of it. Daryl, nineteen eighty two, things kind of came to a head with the fans when yeah. you're involved in an accident in the six hundred at Charlotte, and they actually start cheering. Uh, <laughs> and you basically you let it fly with Larry Woody in the Tennessean, the whole meet me in the Big K parking lot thing. How difficult was that situation for you to navigate? Well, a couple of things happened. First thing that happened is Junior called me in the office, and he said, we got to get something straight. He said, you drive, let me do the talking. He said, because you know, apparently you can't, every time you open your mouth, you end up in, with a lot of, you got, you got a couple, <laughs> you got two strings hanging outside of your mouth. Yeah. We needed something about that. So that was the first thing. But that was so misinterpreted. Can you imagine Larry Woody misinterpreting something? <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> Friday night, I'd been at the Kmart signing autographs, and the line was around the building. I mean, there were people there. I, mean, I couldn't even sign them all. And so that was why I made the reference to the Kmart. But it came out all wrong. I, 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 want, I said, I just wish these people could have met me, or I wish they had been at the Kmart Friday night and they would have, they would see a different side of me, but it, I don't know how would he, I don't know how he figured, I don't know why he did it, but he did. He just put Waltrip challenges fans to meet him at the Kmart. And of course that didn't go over good with anybody, sponsors, junior, the whole nine, NASCAR, 
you know, I, I didn't mean it to come out that way. And it didn't come out that way except when Larry Woody put it in the paper, it came out that way. <laughs> Woody calls me. Oh, I love it. Woody would call me and say, uh, 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 Daryl, uh, uh, don't get mad at me, but I had to quote you today. I said, I haven't even talked to you. How can, I, how can you quote me? He said, well, I, you'll be happy. He said, I think, you'll, I think you'll be all right with what I said. You said what you told me. And I, he would do that. He would call me and say he had to, had to quote me, even though he hadn't even talked to me. <laughs> okay. One of my best buddies. Daryl, 1983, you do have a championship battle with Bobby Allison. Uh, actually, 81, 82, and 83. Yeah. Um, and you two had definitely had your share of run-ins together. Yeah. What was it like to race him for those titles, knowing that there was that big a rivalry in play? Yeah. Well, Bobby was my best friend. Bobby, when I drove uh, here at Nashville, uh, PB Crowell was friends with Bobby, and Bobby built PB's cars. And so the cars I had, the cars I drove, were all built by Bobby Allison. And so I didn't know who Bobby was because he was kind of an upstart himself at that time. This was in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, he would come here in Nashville and race late model sportsman cars with us occasionally. And uh, then I, I finally ended up going down to a shop in Hueytown. And Bobby and Judy, his wife at the time, uh, and Stevie and I, we became great friends. Uh, everything, I, everything, I, everything, I ever, everything I know about a race car, I learned from Bobby Allison. I didn't know how to check the front end, set the caster, the camber, uh, bump steer. I didn't know how to do any of that. Wedge springs, shocks. Uh, I, I just, I'd never been exposed to, to all those things. And Bobby in his shop, uh, and Donnie was a real, a lot, a lot of help too, but Bobby mostly, uh, showed me how to check the caster and the camber and, the, and use a front end gauge and a toe stick. And Bobby taught me a lot about the basics of a race car. And so we were great friends. And, uh, then we got in, and, and I think it's, I feel this, this way, and I think probably most guys do. As long as you're not beating, as long as I'm not having to compete against you, we're great friends. But as soon as I have to start, as soon as I have to start dealing with you on a weekly basis, and you're trying to take bread off my table, I'm not so sure we're friends anymore. And that's kind of what happened to Bobby and I. Uh, one thing led to another. Uh, little incident here, little incident there. Uh, I beat Bobby at Darlington in '77. Uh, pass him uh, under coming to get the caution flag in Richard and David all wrecked and I beat him back to the line. He didn't like that. And so just, I guess I kind of, I just all of a sudden started rubbing Bobby the wrong way. And pretty soon the first thing you know, uh, you know, we're not friends anymore. We're, we're like enemies. And, uh, it was a shame because, uh, I love Bobby. Uh, I think some of the things that he's gone through in his life, uh, it is, it's been amazing that, He's been able to deal with all the adversity and all the things that he's had to deal with, uh, and 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 he was, and he was, and I believe he's as good a friend now as he was when we started. But there were times when it just it just didn't work out well. Uh, I beat him for the championship two years. The third year, you know, he beat me, and he went to drive for Diegard, and uh, it, it, it it just so many things happened. He drove for Junior Johnson. And he could have won the championship for junior with junior if he hadn't made junior mad. But Bobby always just had a tendency to whoever he drove for, the Stravolas. Uh, Bobby was kind of an independent guy and he wanted to do things his way. And when they didn't, 
when they when he wasn't allowed to do things his way, he got unhappy and started blaming, you know, everybody and their brother for the problems he was having. But anyway, he could have won a championship for Junior, but he made Junior mad, and Junior didn't go the last race, and it wow. cost Bobby the championship. So, and Bobby Allison was one of the most talented. I think overall, when you talk about knowing knowing your cars, having having done your own deal and done all the things Bobby's done, he's probably one of the most talented people that you would ever have competed against. But it just it just was his, a lot of times it was attitude. It just like everybody he always always came across as everybody was against him. I remember when he drove for Waddell, and Waddell and I were good friends. And Waddell said to Bobby, "Come on radio," and said, "Well, we're not going to win this race today because everybody's against us." And I just think. That was probably the biggest downfall Bobby had was thinking that everybody was working against him and not working for him. Daryl, if for no other reason than to show that God has a sense of humor, officially you and Bobby are tied with 84 wins each. I know. But you ask Bobby and he will insist that he has 85. I know, I know. You know, I I, I guess – I don't know the circumstance. I mean, I've heard the story about how you won the race in a baby grand or in a, in a, what they call those cars in uh, grand, grand America. America. Yeah. yeah. You had a Mustang, everybody else. Would, I, I don't, I don't know what the whole story was, but he won that race, but he did, he won it in a car that wasn't supposed to be in that race. And I never forget. And to this day, Bill France, I told Bill one time, I said, Bill, just give him credit for the win. <laughs> he complains about it all the time. <laughs> Just give it to him. I don't really care. It doesn't really matter to me. Bill put his arm around me like Bill could do. And then he said, listen, you don't have to worry about that. He ain't never getting credit for that race. And so that's that's the way it's always been. And, um, you know, how could two guys that are started out great friends and then ended up being great co- competing against each other and not liking each other so much <laughs> be tied with 84 <laughs> wins seems kind of ironic to me. I'm sure – I think it's funny. I don't know if Bobby does. But I think it's funny. <laughs> Daryl, as much success as you'd had those first couple of years, there was a, evidently a point where Junior – I remember talking to him at breakfast one day, and, and I actually asked him a couple of times, now, am I hearing you correctly? But there was evidently a point where Junior was going to cut you loose in order to hire Dell Earnhardt going into the 84 season. Right. Do you remember anything at all about that? What was the situation? Yeah, I don't know. I know Junior liked Dale a lot. And uh, I think I think Junior would have hired Dale. He loved, he, he was, had a lot of respect for Childress and what Childress had been able to put together and do. Uh, and But Junior loved – he loved a driver like Dale. He, you know, he, he, did, he, he didn't hold anything back. Uh, you know, he drove until it blew up or he ran over somebody or whatever. Uh, he was just that kind of driver, and, they, and, and Junior really liked that. And, and I wasn't that way. I was calcu- I always calculated all. I, I thought about the whole race, not just part of the race. How am I going to win this race? Five hundred laps, five hundred miles, whatever it was. And 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 so I learned the hard way that you know you you can't you can't wreck, you can't blow up, uh, you can't have things happen to your car every week uh, and survive. And so when I drove for for I drove for PB Crow, I drove for myself. Who I drove for? My first objective was to finish that race, and I knew I couldn't get in a in a pushing contest with somebody if I was going to win a race because 
they'll wreck me or I'll wreck them or we'll both wreck and neither one of us will win. So I always drove kind of calculating and using my mind and using my brain and, and trying to, to, to get the most out of my car without killing the car or without killing myself. And so that's the way I drove. Junior, at first, you know, you win 24 races in two years. He can't help but like you. I mean, what do you, what's there not to like? Yeah. But as time went by and the cars were not as good and other people caught up and it got harder and harder to win, uh, Junior didn't like that. And, uh, you know, Dale was a roughneck and Junior liked roughnecks. And uh, Dale, you know, Dale would tell you right up front, hey, I run over you. You're in my way, I run over you. That's just the way Dale was and Junior liked that. But really – kept junior from hiring Dale was when he wrecked me at Darling or at, uh, at Richmond. Uh, I think they were real close to putting a deal together for, uh, for Earnhardt to come and drive for junior. But when Earnhardt wrecked me at Richmond, uh, after the race and all the hoopla and everything had calmed down a little bit, Dale came over to junior and told junior, he didn't do that on purpose. And it made junior mad. And you, you make junior mad, you know, junior Johnson, one thing about it, you made him mad one time. You didn't get a second chance. <laughs> yeah. And so that made Dale, Dale made Junior mad, and, Dale, and, and Junior told said, boy, you get out of my face. I know what you did. You know what you did, and wow. I don't want to hear it. And that was the end of that relationship. Uh, that was the end of Junior wanting to hire Dale. And what happened in 86, our cars were just not that good. Uh, we struggled in 85. We only won three races. But I did, I was, a, I was consistent, and I won the championship. I beat Bill. 86. The cars were just – they were slow. And and Junior had convinced himself and most of the guys on the team that it was me, that I wasn't pushing the button, that I wasn't driving hard anymore, that I'd gotten hurt a few times. I was scared, blah, 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 blah. I'll never forget we were at Wilkesboro, and I was racing Jeff O'Dine, and uh, I was trying to pass him. And I came on the radio, and I said – Hammond was a crew. I said, Hammond, go down there and tell that bunch of knuckleheads that if he doesn't get out of my way, I'm putting him in the fence. And Junior came on the radio and he said, boy, you wouldn't put a piss in in the fence. <laughs> and, and, I mean, just, wow. just like that. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that kind of, that whole, that 86 year was just that way the whole year. And of course, the good thing was for me, Rick Hendrick was kind of had taken up the range at Chevrolet. They were, he was getting a lot of help from Chevrolet and Junior didn't like that. And Herb Fishel and Junior had fallen out, and Junior was having a lot of problems. Things weren't going well at the shop. Warner Hodgson and two cars, and it was just things just got all upside down and got to be a mess. Fortunately for me, Rick Hendrick wanted to hire me. I'll never forget. I went in. I told Junior I didn't want to leave. Or, uh, even as bad as things could have been or might have been, I didn't want to leave. I loved it there. I was it was home, and I'd had so much success there. And Junior was in his office one day, and I walk in, and he got some glasses on. And I like that. And I said, uh, Junior, I said, uh, got a minute? What do you want, boy? I said, uh, I got a call from uh, Rick Hendrick. Well, Junior didn't like Rick Hendrick. I got a call from Rick Hendrick, and he said he had a deal that I might be interested in, and uh, he willing to, wanted to hire me and said he'd pay me 500000 salary a year. And he got dead quiet. And I said, so what do you think? And he looked at me and he said, boy, you need to go take that deal. And that was the end of our relationship. Hmm. That was wow. in like uh, May, June, maybe July. Was it really that early? 
Oh, yeah. And uh, what was funny was I, I just was telling him. I'd gone to work there, and I'll never forget when I signed a contract with Junior, paid me 50% of what I won and a salary of $150,000. That was my salary. And uh, so I, I never asked for a raise. Junior always said, I can't pay you a lot of money, but you're, you're going to win a lot of money. So it's really up to you how, you know, how much money you make. And so I thought, well, it's, I've been here six years. By the time I should maybe get a little raise. Anyway, I thought Junior would come back and say, well, I can't do that, but I can do this. But he didn't. Uh, I think it was Rick, and it was just the timing of everything, and it just, it just didn't turn out well. And I'll never forget, this is four cell phones. So I walk out of his office and say, oh, crap. Man, I got to call Rick. <laughs> I got to get him on the phone right away and tell him. Uh, I Junior, can I borrow your phone? What about I take that deal? So, but nobody knows this conversation with Junior. So a couple of weeks go by and I'm, I'm go up to the shop. We're getting a car ready to go somewhere. I don't remember where. And Hammond and all the boys are working on the car. And I'm going to get, get my seat fitted and all the pedals and everything. So I'm sitting in the car and they all come around the car, the whole team. And they said, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't I tell you what? Why didn't you tell us you were leaving? I said, I'm leaving. Uh, uh, well, I didn't tell you because I didn't know it. Yeah, Junior said that you came in the other day and said that uh, you were going to work, go to work for Rick Hendrick and uh, that this was your last year. And, man, that floored me because I hadn't said anything. Nobody had said anything. Rick hadn't said anything because I thought, Rick, I hadn't got things worked out yet. And I don't know for sure, but maybe I can do your deal. I, I'll, I'll let you know. So anyway, I heard something the other day, and I'll never know. Maybe somebody someday will tell me that the reason we went to the last race, uh, next to last race, I think it was, at Atlanta, and we had a shot at winning a championship. We were racing Dale in 86, and uh, somebody told me that, that no, knew Junior really, really well that Junior went in the shop before we went to Atlanta and told the guys, do y'all really want him to win the championship when he's leaving here next year? You want to help him win the championship and he won't even be here? And they all looked at Junior like, what are you talking about? And Junior said, I'll tell you what we're going to do, boys. We're going to go up to the uh, house up in the mountains. We're going to pick up sticks. And y'all let that car set. And uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I never heard that before. It floored me because I never thought about Junior being that way. But I did hear that from some reliable source. And uh, I've never really checked with anybody to see if it's true or not. I don't really know if I want to know if it's true or not. But uh, that was kind of the way Junior was. I'll never forget. One of his best friends ticked him off. And I said, Junior, went in one day and said, Junior, whatever happened to Ron? Ron who? Your buddy Ron. He was here. He said he died. What? What happened? He died. I don't know what happened to him. He ain't around. I didn't, I haven't seen him. He died. He's gone. The guy hadn't died. He just died to Junior. Wow. Okay. That's the way Junior kind of operated.
Hello, Scene Vault Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. Again, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Scene Vault Podcast, Rick and Steve, and the wonderful interviews they've been doing with the folks from NASCAR history, the drivers, the crew chiefs, the people that made it all happen over the years. At QWare, we are very proud to be a part of this podcast and being able to bring it to you, especially at a time when you have limited entertainment options. We hope that you're enjoying it, and we hope that you get a chance to check us out at QWareCMMS.com. QWare is one of the most powerful, simple-to-use, computerized maintenance management systems on the market for your facility's maintenance team. Whatever your business, check us out. QWareCMMS.com. We're here to help your team maintain excellence. From all of us at QWare, we hope that you and your family stay safe and healthy. Now let's get back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Steve Darrell had just signed a three-year deal with Diegard when Kel Yarbrough came to him with this stunning news. Kel's going to leave Junior Johnson. He didn't want to drive a full schedule anymore, and he tells Darrell that Junior wants to hire him. First of all, how big a deal was it that Kel Yarbrough was going to Darrell Waltrip and giving him a heads up on this deal? They weren't exactly the best of friends. No, not at all, but Kel knew what Junior knew. In other words, Junior wanted Daryl. So why not go to Daryl and say, hey, I want you to know something. Junior wants to wants you to drive for him. I'm not going to be there anymore. And I think he'll also recognize that Daryl is just the kind of driver that Junior would like. Because let's face it, Kale and Daryl were not far apart when it came to driving style. Daryl had tried to get out of his contract before with Diegard. He had tried, especially in 1978, and very nearly succeeded because there was a headline in Grand National Scene that said that it was a done deal, that he was going to go drive for Harry Rainier, but then whatever happened, happened, and he <laughs> wound up driving for Diegard the very next year. So what was the word in the garage at the time? Was it like, here we go again? Well, yeah, to a certain extent. Uh, I don't think any of us anticipated that Daryl would have any trouble getting out of that contract. You guys remember contracts in NASCAR at that time, they were very few and they were never done in the years before. Everything was a handshake deal. Well, what did the contract mean? We didn't know. We just thought it meant if they want to mutually split, they can do that. So we really didn't anticipate Daryl having the problems that he did. Now, how big a surprise was it that he actually succeeded? Well, very much, especially when we learned later how he did it. When we talked to Andy Petrie, he told us how he faced a very definite sense of pushback when he joined Richard Childress Racing as Dale Earnhardt's crew chief. And Daryl was in a similar situation when he moved to juniors because here's a guy who had spent the last four or five years, I mean, just talking absolute smack about the 11 car and Kel in particular, and all of a sudden, Daryl Waltrip's their driver. Well, D.W. is talking smack about them because that's the way D.W. operated. Come on. We've talked about how he could be a real cocky smartass <laughs> when he wanted to be. That's what he's trying to do, to do the best he can to combat that team. Now put the shoe on the other foot. Why not go to the 11 team? That's the team we've been trying to beat for years, and they've beat you about as many times as you've beaten them. So why not be able to go to that team if you possibly can? Well, Jarrett, here is an image for you. Longtime Junior Johnson employee, Bud Allman, 
He's this rough, tough guy. He is the last holdout. He and Daryl are just about to come to terms over a cup of good old Wilkes County moonshine (laughs) (laughs) when the stuff evidently eats a hole in the bottom of Daryl's cup and everything dumps out onto the floor. So that's an image. Wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, that must have been one of those deals where it's just like, how does this happen? (laughs) I tasted moonshine. And it really doesn't surprise me that the bottom of styrofoam cup went away. The thing I want to know is what damage did it do to the floor? (laughs) (laughs) That's the important question. (laughs) Well, in 1981 and 1982, Daryl's first two seasons with Junior Johnson, he has huge seasons, wins 12 races each year and wins the championship in both years. What was the secret of Daryl's success with Junior, Steve? It wasn't much of a secret. Uh, Junior built darn good cars with darn good engines at this particular time. Now, he knew things and he did things the other teams didn't know or do. No question about that. They had a great crew, by the way. Daryl was his kind of driver, a no-nonsense, get-it-done type of guy. Junior was not a big fan of drivers who laid back and applied strategy and won races by using their minds more than their foot. The rule Junior always had was go to the front, and Daryl had a car to do just that. That's why they were so good together. I'm, I'm, I, I was looking a bit and how that team was before and, and with them, and it's just insane how good they were for so long. I mean, because I'm, I'm looking at, at you know the stats – just beforehand uh, with Kelly Yarbrough and how good they were. And then going to, it seems like it translated directly to Daryl Waltrip right, right off the bat. I mean, just those two championship seasons in 81 and 82, he had 12 wins each season. That's just crazy to me. Like that's something that you don't see nowadays. With Kelly Yarbrough in the car, they won three straight championships. 1981, 1982, they're back on top of the mountain. And they add a third championship for DW in 1985. So, yeah, that team was pretty strong for quite a while. I mean, that, those are crazy stats. You don't see that anymore, really. Like one team being able to translate from driver to driver so easily. Uh, it's just it's something that's really impressive. DW's closest competitor both years for the championship was none other than Bobby Allison, <laughs> who was his biggest rival. Now, I didn't know that they had ever been friends, but going back to Daryl's pre-cup career, he said that Bobby Allison taught him everything that he knows about setting up a car because Bobby was actually building the short track car that he was running at Nashville and you know different tracks over the southeast. But, yeah, during that time, they were actually buddies, and Bobby taught him everything that he knows about setting up a car. Bobby indeed knew how to build a race car and how to maintain a race car. He did it his way, and it rubbed up on Daryl on how to maintain a car. That much is true. Jared, I have a very important question for you. Yes, sir. How many wins does Bobby Allison have in his Oh, come on, Rick. (laughs) No, 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 no. This is a test. Okay. Are we talking talking like the ones on the book or the, like, including um, some of the other controversial ones, because I know there's a, there's a debate between 84 and 85. Hey, listen, you got you to gotta take a stand one way or the other. Is it 84 or is it 85? 
You know, I'm going to go 85. I like Bobby Allison. I'm going there 85. You go. Good answer. <laughs> he was, he was, I, I, I have to support him as much as I can. He was nice enough to be the first big interview that I, we ever got on our show. So I'm, I am going with, with Bobby Allison on anything. <laughs> <laughs> he does have 85 wins. I'll always say that, as will he. The one question that I really did want to ask Daryl was about the fact that they are officially tied with 84 wins each. And as I mentioned to Daryl, I think that's just proof that God has a sense of humor. Two drivers that probably disliked each other the most wind up tied in the record books officially. I did want to ask Daryl about that. And to be honest with you, I kind of expected Daryl to kind of dance around the subject and to say that, yeah, they are tied and that maybe Bobby didn't deserve credit for that win. And maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But he did say that Bobby won the race there at Bowman Gray Stadium in 1971. He didn't know all the circumstances, but he did know that Bobby did win that race and that he actually did go to Bill France Jr., told him to go ahead and give Bobby credit for the win. I thought that was pretty cool on Daryl's part. I think you are exactly right. Um, And really, when you stop and think about it, why not? We've all talked about Bobby winning the race. It was Bowling Gray, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And he was in a... a, Grand American. Exactly. He was in a Grand American Mustang. Grand American one time, I think was going to own Grand National East and so forth and so on. But be that as it may, he was in a Grand American car, won a, a cup race, and that's why the victory was not officially recorded as a victory. But I think even Daryl, after admitting that he won the race and going to Bill France and saying, go ahead and give it to Bobby, realized, ah, come on, the truth is the truth, and let's deal with it. Jared, are you taking notes? I kind of sense this iceberg video coming together. I don't know, man. I think I think I might. I think I might. I'll, I'll, uh, I'm definitely take, I, I take tons of notes about different videos and stuff. Uh, so I'm going to have to add this one down to it. I just, I'm really quick. I wanted to kind of add a little, um, cause I know you guys are saying that they were big rivals and stuff. Uh, when I asked Bobby Allison, it was actually really funny that the origin of the question I'll, after the show, I'll probably let you guys, uh, know, know the origin of the question, but, uh, I asked him, a bit about his rivalries and he, he claimed that he never had a rivalry with anybody. He said he was good with everybody. <laughs> this is Bobby different. Allison we're talking about, right? Yeah. I Correct. Correct. Okay. <laughs> we're talking about Bobby Allison of Hueytown, Alabama, not of Reno, Nevada or something. Bobby Allison, 85 win Bobby Allison. That's who we're talking about. <laughs> okay. Ask him about, ask him about 1972, if nothing else. I mean, ask him about 1979 Daytona 500. Yeah, right. Ask him about the- <laughs> he, he said there was a disagreement, and that that uh, Kale's nose commenced to hit in his fist. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> that's uh, that's what he told us. He said we, they just uh, the, there was a disagreement down in uh, three and four down there. Well, as big a rivalry as Daryl had with Bobby Allison, things kind of came to a head with the fans in 1982 when he was involved in a wreck at Charlotte in the World 600, the Coca-Cola 600. And Steve, as we talked about in the intro, fans actually cheered the fact that he was in this accident, didn't know if he was okay and all that. You know, there's a fine line between love and hate in NASCAR, and it is fun 
to bicker and defend your favorite driver against a buddy's favorite driver. And that's what makes this sport fun. Sure. Is the rivalries, as long as it's good natured. Now, when you cheer the fact that somebody's been in the wreck, that is way, way overboard. And I, to be honest with you, I don't give a flying rat's butt how much you don't like a driver. They are still human. They still have families. And to cheer a driver who has been in an accident, I don't know. That's over uh, the line. That's a black mark on the fan and on the sport, an unintended black mark on the sport, but still is. This is exactly one criticism that's been given to NASCAR over the years. Fans only go to races to see wrecks. That's not true. But when you cheer when a driver gets in a wreck, especially if you don't know his condition, that's exactly what fuels that particular fire. Well, I think in a lot of cases, fans see the cars in the wrecks and they ooh and they awe ah about the flying sheet metal and the cars upside down and all that kind of thing. But what they don't remember or they don't recognize or appreciate is the fact that there's a living, breathing human being behind the wheel of that race car. And yeah. whether you like them or not, they're still a human being. And to cheer something like that, I'm going to get off my soapbox before I get myself in, <laughs> in trouble. But after DW is involved in this incident and he is booed by the fans, Larry Woody talks to DW. And Steve, just to set up this story, tell me who Larry Woody is. Larry Woody is the longtime racing writer for the Nashville Tennessean, which, of course, at that particular time is Daryl's basic hometown paper. And yeah. you know the paper well. Yes, I do. Well, that's what he did. And Larry was a very, very competent. A professional writer, in my opinion. I read a lot of his stuff, and he could be very, very funny when he wanted to be. Well, he was also hardcore. He was a combat veteran of Vietnam, so he could be a very no-nonsense kind of guy. One of my all-time favorite press box stories came from Larry Woody at Bristol. I don't remember the year, but Tony Stewart had been involved in an incident with Jeff Gordon earlier that year in the spring race. He wound up spinning Jeff Gordon as they entered pit road after the race and got in trouble for that. And then in the fall race, Tony won the race and he had been racing Jeff Gordon. And Larry waited his turn to ask a question during the press conference in the press box after the race. And Larry asked what I thought was a very appropriate question. He said, while you were racing Jeff tonight, was the incident that you had with him in the spring on your mind? Was that a consideration? Were you maybe giving him more room or racing him just the same or whatever? And Tony just looked at him and did the Tony Stewart deal and said, you must be a local. That's a I was question. there. I saw that's that. A, that's a dumb question. Well, most reporters would have been, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, you didn't intimidate Larry Woody, evidently, because Larry Woody said, what do you mean? I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. I ride for the Nashville, Tennessee. And, and, you know, so what do you mean, am I a local? And so they actually started bickering. That was one thing. But after Tony left the press box, that was the most impressive string of cuss words I've ever heard (laughs) in my life. Larry Woody was spun out (laughs) 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 he was he was on it baby (laughs) from time to time tony could elicit that kind of reaction from the media (laughs) (laughs) 
so Daryl Waltrip talks to Larry Woody after this incident in the 1982 World 600. One thing leads to another, and there's a story in the Tennessean where Daryl has a, apparently challenged everybody who booed him to meet him down in the Big K parking lot, and they would duke it out. Now, Daryl almost immediately claimed that he was misquoted. The quotes were in the right order, but they were taken out of context or whatever it was. But he said that he meant to say that he had been at a Big K that weekend signing autographs, and he wished that those who didn't like him could have seen him then. This is how his quote read in the June 2nd, 1982 issue of the Tennessean in Nashville. This is what he said. What I ought to do is put out a bulletin that I'll be at the Big K parking lot at a certain time, and anybody who doesn't like me can show up and we'll just duke it out. They can get there. They can get out their aggression and I can vent my frustration at the same time. Now, Steve, I'm probably a little biased as a reporter. I don't know how you misinterpret that, but if Daryl says that he was misinterpreted, I don't know. Well, I'm looking at that quote. I remember that quote very well from back then. And I don't understand how you can misinterpret that quote whatsoever. I mean, if that is what Daryl said, and notice he never said, I didn't say it. What he's saying was, it was misinterpreted. Now, there and I is meant to a, say something else. <laughs> right. There is a big difference. Right? <laughs> and Steve, here's the thing about the quote. It's not in the lead paragraph. It's not mentioned specifically in the headline over the story, which read, Walter levels blasts at racing hecklers. So the quote was not, in my opinion, sensationalized. But that's the one thing that people remember from that article is let's all meet down at the Big K parking lot and duke it out. A lot like Mike Harmon inviting everybody down to the Golden Corral. <laughs> but it was buried almost exactly halfway through the five-column story. It started out on the bottom of the third column and then finished off at the top of the fourth. So it was buried in the story, but that's what everybody remembers. Jarrett, you made the connection between Daryl Waltrip and Kyle Busch. And I think in this case, especially, there is a huge connection from Daryl Waltrip of the late 1970s and early 1980s to the Kyle Busch that we know today. Yes, he's very successful. He is an all-time great. He is a first ballot Hall of Famer, but he also has this reputation I just, the more that I keep seeing and hearing you guys talk about how, uh, how Daryl's mouth was back then, it's like, it's just solidified it for me. I mean, it's almost like the same, it's almost like the same driver just in different eras. Cause I mean, you, you see both of them are, are, you know, at complete odds with the fans, the, the fans cheering the fans cheering daryl going out of a race reminds me so much of all those different times i mean at bristol this past year in uh the 2019 xfinity race i think it was uh kyle bush was leading and he blew up and as soon as he went to the garage the the stands went nuts i thought there was a hundred thousand people there in the place you know definitely there wasn't a hundred thousand people but they they were loud enough to be uh and so i can definitely see the connections a ton right now between the two and i'm really now the, the thing that I'm, I was thinking, uh, listening to you guys, is I understand now why Daryl Waltrip has been so keen on being behind Kyle Busch and defending him on a lot of different issues and stuff. Because he's probably sitting there like, oh, yeah, 
I was right in that kid's shoes at this time, you know? Absolutely. Raising needs a bad guy. Raising needs a villain. Well, Kyle Bush has been the villain for a few years now, and now we can actually see how Daryl, back in his rise and with his glory years with Junior Johnson, considering the way he talked, he was a bad guy back then for that period of time. Another thing that I really wanted to ask Daryl about was Junior saying that he had a deal in place to fire Daryl to hire Dale Earnhardt going into the 1984 season. And Daryl said that he knew that Junior liked Dale and his style of driving. But also, he did say that after Dale and Daryl got into that wreck that Jarrett mentioned in the intro, the infamous wreck at Richmond at the beginning of the 1986 season, he said that Junior didn't have any use for Dale afterward. Oh, but Junior probably didn't after that incident. But Junior told me face-to-face one problem he had with trying to hire Dale was that Budweiser, who was Junior's sponsor at the time, didn't want Dale. They didn't think he was suitable for their image. That's what really held Junior at bay for quite a while. I'll be honest with you. I don't understand Budweiser's thinking at that particular time. But that's what Junior said, and you have to believe him. Now, Steve, refresh my memory. Who was it that sponsored Dale Jr. at the beginning of his cup career? Who was that? How about that? What do you think? Budweiser, of course. <laughs> I guess that's Budweiser what... finally came to its senses. That's what, that's what, when you said that, that made me kind of like chuckle because I'm like, wait a minute. Like, wasn't it not even 15 years later they're sponsoring the eight car in, yeah. uh, with Dale Jr.? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting Absolutely. how time changes things. What did Daryl say in this disputed quote? He said, meet me at the Big K parking lot, right? Now, who was Daryl's sponsor years later when he was running his own team? One of his sponsors, of course. Kmart. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's amazing how things twist and turn in racing. Just planning for the long term on that one. And finally, Daryl gets a call from Rick Hendrick about this new team that he's putting together. And Daryl says, let me think about it. I don't want to make any decisions right now. He goes in to talk to Junior about it. And he's expecting a little bit of a negotiation and salary or something. And He's expecting Junior to say, no, we want you to stay here and all that. And Junior basically, according to Daryl, looked at him and said, boy, you need to take that deal. And that was it, Steve. That (laughs) was it. The next thing he knows, the guys in the shop are coming to him and asking him why he hadn't said anything about leaving. And Daryl was like, I didn't know that I was leaving. So (laughs) that must have been an awful uncomfortable situation. Well, it was, I'm sure, for Daryl, but you have to understand, Junior, it can be very blunt. And when he realized that Rick Hendrick wanted him and wanted to give Daryl a bit more than Junior was willing to give him himself, why not tell a man to go on? I can't match it. I'm not going to be even try. So go on. Take that deal. I don't exactly know where to go with this one, but Daryl finished up this part of the interview by saying, that he had heard through the grapevine recently that Junior told the crew that Daryl was not going to win the championship in 1986. So essentially, Daryl is saying that Junior told the crew that they were going to tank intentionally. That's pretty hefty stuff. If you realize what a competitor Junior Johnson was, he's not going to settle for anything less than first place if he can make it. And why not win another championship? Find it hard to believe. 
that he would tell his team, just don't do your best out there for the boy anymore. No, it's about Junior winning another championship as well. Certainly, I think that there's room to talk about lame duck status and Daryl's a lame duck. And yeah, there's certainly going to be a little bit of awkwardness and everything, but to intentionally throw it, I don't know. No, man. Not Junior. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, why not go for another championship to make the seven for you as an owner instead of six? I can't see him backing away from that. Well, and it seemed like if he was tanking, he did a pretty bad job of it finishing it. Didn't he finish second in points that year? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't the greatest job either then if, if that were to be the case. I agree with you. And, you know, there was some animosity during this whole time. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase a quote that came from Daryl at this time. But he basically saying by moving to Hendrick, he was getting off a mule and getting on a thoroughbred. And Junior was responded by saying, I'm getting rid of a jackass. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was uh, there was some trash talk back then. I love it. I love it. I wish there was more of that today. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And Steve, Brian posted so much stuff last week that I've actually got my cell phone out and I'm looking at it just to remind myself of some of the just amazing stuff that he posted last week. We've got a Kyle Petty t-shirt from the early 1980s, STP number 42 car. We have some patches. Let's see, Greg Sachs in the number 10 Die Guard car that just very highly controversial car at Daytona in the summer of 1985, a Ricky Rudd die guard car, Neil Bonnet in the 12 Budweiser car, Junior Johnson, a Ken Schrader, Red Baron pizza patch. Let's see what else have we got. We got another Dick Trickle t-shirt. And Steve, we have a 1980 Daryl Waltrip die guard Gatorade t-shirt. This is a museum. So evidently, I'm thinking that Brian has boosted this stuff from a museum somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with it. Greg Sachs, number 10. Amazing. Again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter to check out some of this inventory and so much more. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy. Dot com that speedway tsj dot e t s y dot com Steve the December seventeenth, nineteen eighty one issue of Grand National Scene covered the Winston Cup banquet that year. And Steve, that was the first year that NASCAR went to New York City for the Winston Cup Banquet. And when NASCAR headed to New York City for the Winston Cup Banquet for the first time, there was probably this perception that it was going to be like the Clampets in Beverly Hills. Steve, yeah, you were there. are probably right. We played off on that. My buddy and I, Tom Higgins, he joined me. And we go, you know, walk around looking at the uh, city on Park Avenue. And we got this idea. We would come to a street corner where a tall building was. And just stand there and look up at that building and wait for somebody to come by within voice range of us. 
and stop and keep our heads looking up toward the top of a building or something or other. And when we noticed somebody stopped next to us, we'd say, boy, they sure could put a lot of corn in that building. <laughs> and get the reaction. We did more than once. I had a lot of fun with it. But you're right. We were playing off the fact that the Clampets had come to town. But there were several good reasons why NASCAR went to New York. Number one, it's the media capital of the world. Number two, it had an opportunity to present itself in front of this large media and gain valuable exposure. That's what it wanted to do. And number three, yeah, is exactly the breakout of that regional southern sport image and tell everyone NASCAR was indeed national and did indeed belong in New York. Last week, we shared a column that Rob Griggs wrote in a very early issue of Grand National Saying, and it was very highly critical of Daryl. And this week, listen to what the Our Opinion column had to say about him. Stock Car Racing's New York venture made it clear that it can be accepted as a national sport and that it is capable of performing whatever tasks necessary to achieve such acceptance. Perhaps no one better served as an example of this than the new Winston Cup champion, Darrell Waltrip. Constantly herded into press conferences and appearances, Waltrip handled himself admirably. He was virtually the perfect public relations vehicle, at all times charming, entertaining, informative, and humorous. Now, later the commentary concluded... As he stood at the head table, his speech finished, his eyes filled with tears, and his arm around wife Stevie, Waltrip represented a changing of the guard. He was, at that particular moment, the perfect image for NASCAR racing, and even those who do not call themselves his fans would have to agree with that. Now, that is a distinct change in just about four years' time. Steve, there was no byline on the Our Opinion column at that time. Who actually wrote that? Or was that by committee at the time? Wasn't that some magnificent prose right there? Good. That's Pulitzer Prize winning stuff right there. I'm Gene Granger you. must have wrote it. I don't it. know who wrote Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, man. But, you know, at that time, everything in that piece, I think, remains accurate. The most important thing is that Waltrip, being the man of the hour up there, being the man who's speaking for NASCAR, came along at just the right time. Again, we've talked about how he could be cocky and abrasive, but at the same time, I'll go back to what I said earlier. He could be eloquent and very distinct as a speaker when he wanted to be, and this is the perfect time for him to do that. That's exactly why he represented NASCAR so well. You've got the column that Rob wrote in 1977 that was very critical. You've got this glowing commentary in 1981. You've got fans who absolutely love him and adore Darrell Waltrip. And then you've got fans cheering when he wrecks the following year in 1982. And then him maybe or maybe not inviting him down to the Big K parking lot to fight. <laughs> there seem to be two or three different sides to Darrell Waltrip. Well, there's definitely two. And we have, I think we have highlighted those two very well. There was a side of Daryl Waltrip that could be challenging, could be abrasive, could be stubborn, and could be just downright cocky. And then there's the other side of Daryl Waltrip, who is the emerging, very slowly now, but much later on, this will be very true. He's emerging as a statesman, 
because he knows how to handle himself and present a good image when it's called for. And that side of him, I think, takes over as his career moves forward. I was just thinking that, that definitely took over um, when he went into broadcasting, too. Because I, I, growing up, the only thing that I knew about Walsh's driving career was the highlights they put up. So I, I almost exclusively knew of him as a kid as just Daryl Waltrip, the announcer. And that was one, he was one of the biggest uh, ambassadors for the sport at that time. And, and really somebody that you could learn a lot from if you're just getting into it right from the start. And so definitely over time, that change could really be seen. Because when, when people told me that Daryl Waltrip was one of the most unpopular drivers, I couldn't believe it because I, I love DW, you know, it, I loved hearing him say boogity, boogity, boogity every race. And I loved yeah. hearing his stories and little jokes he would say. And so when people told me that he was unpopular back when I was like 10 or 11, when they told me that, I couldn't believe him. You know, it was like, it was, and seeing that stuff, it almost was like two different people. So I, I totally see where you guys were, you know, and everyone yeah. is coming from with that. You, you got to see for an experience firsthand, Daryl Waltrip, the elder statesman. That's what he was when he started a broadcasting career. And he's pretty much the same thing throughout his broadcasting career. But he's not the only one in NASCAR that was not very popular when he got started. You know, Kyle Busch, you know, he's, he's fairly unpopular to this day. But I'll tell you something. The longer he stays in racing, the more accepted and appreciated Kyle Busch is going to be. And I think he's going to change significantly. Another one, Dale Earnhardt. Believe it or not, as much of an icon as he is in the world of NASCAR today, when he started out, he was not the popular star that he became. He was considered a guy who ran over other competitors. He, he uh, was very aggressive, too aggressive on the track, and they didn't like that very much. But slowly but surely, he changed into something else. It happens. It happened uh, it's happened with Dale, like I said. I think it's going to happen with Kyle, but it most certainly happened with Daryl Walter. When we say to Daryl Walters, hey, that's truly the case. Steve, there was a Q&A with Stevie Waltrip, Daryl's wife, in this issue, and it was done in the press box, evidently, after Daryl clinched the championship at Riverside. Stevie said the toughest part was this race. Waiting from the Atlanta race until now was extremely tense and stressful for both of us. We didn't sleep. It was hard for us to eat. We were just consumed by anticipating what this race could mean for us. And they had actually been through a championship loss before, 1979, that iconic last race of the 1979 season when Darrell led by two or three points going into the finale and then lost the championship, I think, by 11 points. So they knew what it was like to lose a championship. And so they were very stressed out. Then to actually come back and win one, was pretty special. Yeah, it really was. And uh, yeah, I repeat what you said. I could understand them being very stressful, having lost a championship the way they did the year before to be in the, you know, be at the edge of winning one a year later. That's got to be somewhat tense. And Steve, this is how things have changed so much. Stevie was also asked in this story, now that Daryl has won the championship, do you and Daryl plan to have children? Whoa. <laughs> and uh, asking a question like that really put it into perspective that it appeared like driving the race car was Daryl's job and Stevie's job was to have babies. And so the, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, exactly. things have changed. 
Definitely. Oh, have they? You wouldn't want to ask that question today. At least not for print. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you want to ask it anyway. (laughs) Well, it depends on how well you knew the the subject. (laughs) Well, Steve, there was a lot of Gerald Waltrip content in this issue. The multiple choice quizzes that you had in your columns every once in a while were either legendary or notorious. Take your pick. Here was your Daryl Waltrip question that week. Daryl Waltrip had a phenomenal season, winning 12 races and hundreds of thousands of dollars en route to his first NASCAR Winston Cup championship. However, he still had one more goal, and that was A, to take Jim Palmer's place in the jockey shorts ads, B, to punch Die Guard President Bill Gardner in the nose, <laughs> C, to have the opportunity to lace Mountain Dew with vodka, D, to sneak away somewhere and guzzle down a liter of Coca-Cola. So what, what's your answer on that one, Steve? <laughs> well, uh, I think uh, I would go with A, <laughs> to take Jim Palmer's place in a jockey shorts hat. <laughs> no, hey, listen. Uh, that I would we, like to have seen. We had the image of Daryl coming out of the motorhome in the Dale Earnhardt jacket and no shirt. So, yeah, that's as close to a Jim Palmer jockey shorts ad as I want to get. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. But I would love to see that. Finally, there was a lot of other content in this issue, obviously. There was a scene on the circuit item about Bobby Allison's trip home from the season finale at Riverside. Now, Jarrett. Again, how many wins does Bobby Allison have? 85. There you go, buddy. Steve, if we've tried anything, we've taught him something. (laughs) We've taught him something. Just happy to learn. (laughs) In this story, he's coming home from the season finale at Riverside. He's flying his own plane back to Hueytown. He's at 23,000 feet when one of his two engines quit because of a blocked oil line. When I started at scene, I didn't like to fly. And when I ended at scene, I didn't like to fly. And I can attribute <laughs> it mainly to Phil Cavelli because every time we would get on the runway and start to take off or whatever, the pilot would give it the gas and we'd go roaring down the runway. And Phil would be sitting next to me saying, What was that? I've never heard that before. What? What, what is that? And so I can only imagine what it would have been like to be at 23,000 feet with Bobby Allison and the engine go out. Bobby said in this story, we had to shut the engine off. My plane is designed to fly with one engine if necessary, and we weren't in any real danger. It was a bit uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. But we flew another 200 miles on one engine. It was a bit uncomfortable. I would have been crying for my mama. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but, you know, flying with Bobby Allison was always an adventure, or so I was told. There was a time that Neil Bonner was flying with him, and I think they were headed to California. And Bobby put it on automatic pilot and said, okay, we can go to sleep now. So they did that. And Neil, something woke him up. I don't know what it was, but he woke up and he looked straight ahead and he said, good Lord. What is that? He nudged Bobby and said, Bobby, I think we're headed through a black cloud up ahead. Bobby said, no, that's a mountaintop. We got to lift up here. <laughs> <And> <laughs> now, boy, 
Boy, I'm telling you, you talk about giving me the willies. I would never want to sit through that. Bobby did wind up landing the plane in El Paso, Texas for repairs. And then he and the rest of the party made it the rest of the way home without incident. So, yeah, that was, that was pretty hairy, evidently, but Bobby was able to handle it. Finally, Steve, in this issue, you joined the Grand National Scene staff in April of 1981 as the executive editor. And in this issue, there was a note in Rob's column that said, the biggest news from this year has been the overwhelming growth of this company. Advertising revenue tripled. Circulation of Grand National Scene more than doubled. The size of the staff increased and our outlook on the purpose of the newspaper changed a great deal. Now, that's some pretty important stuff. Advertising revenue tripling and circulation more than doubling. What was going on with that kind of growth that year in particular? Besides you coming on board, of course. Well, I was going to say that was it. But uh, (laughs) scene scene was starting to catch on. The rumble around stock car racing was that it was no longer a regional sport to some. It was starting to stretch out. For example, going to New York is a perfect example of that. And so with this recognition coming to uh, racing and the media growth, this was the time that races from NASCAR found their way on television because of cable vision. TNN, TBS, uh, of course, CBS and the networks, ABC, NBC, they all, ESPN is a perfect example. It needed content. All of these stations needed content. And they began to pick up NASCAR racing. And as they did so, that opened up NASCAR to more fans out there, and they started to come on board. So this small period of growth, it was not the type of growth that NASCAR enjoyed later in the late 90s when it really boomed. But this kind of thing really fed into scene and helped it uh, grow, as they said, with advertising dollars. But again, the staff of the paper was dedicated into doing the right thing and making these stories and its reporting very accurate. So you had a fair and accurate newspaper teaming up with the growth of NASCAR. And that's what's good for everybody in concerned. Hi, this is Bobby Labonte, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, we had another great Zoomcast conference call with our listeners last week, and Rick Mast was our guest, and I think everybody really enjoyed it. Of course, Rick Mast was Rick Mast, and... That's about all you can say. He is a good guy. He is a truly good guy. He's very patient in his answers. So, yeah, that was a great call. Our numbers continue to grow. I think we had, I think, 33, 35 people on that call. And listen, I'm not sure if the world is ready for this one, but Randy LaJoy will join us on this week's call. (laughs) Heaven help us all. Uh, (laughs) Wow. That's going to be a fun one. one. You do not want to miss this one. So email us at scenevault at yahoo.com if you haven't already done so to get an invitation. We'd love to have you, love to have your input. And with Randy LaJoy on board, there's no telling what might get said or heard or done or whatever. So enjoy that one. Again, email us 
seenvault at yahoo.com to be on that call. So that will be great. We continue to get awesome reviews on iTunes, and I had to share this one first. Now, this person's username, Country Strong NC 83 That's an awesome username, okay? Country Strong NC 83 Then there's the headline on this review. A day in Steve Wade's mind. Well, that's an empty place. All you're going to hear is an echo up in there. <laughs> Is that a whistling sound I hear? (laughs) (laughs) This review reads, I've been listening to the podcast since the first day it was released and can't wait till the next week for the next episode. It's like taking a trip back to a better day. Take an hour and forget everything going on in the world and learn something you may not have known or relive a great time in NASCAR that you remember. I love this podcast. It's truly for the NASCAR purist. I love Steve Wade's insight on each episode. He's also a true NASCAR legend, along with his best friend, Tom Higgins. Well, I really, really like that uh, very much. And uh, gosh, I'm flattered. But thank you very much for that review. A day in Steve Wade's mind. (laughs) I don't know. Well, bring... Bring a cot because you're going to want to go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, Jarrett, thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate your perspective as a fan who is not as far along in years and experience as maybe Steve and I are, but that makes your perspective fresh and it makes it important. And listen, this podcast is about the next generation. And you are that next generation. And I look forward to seeing what happens with you next, man. Jared, we expect big things out of you, partner. I I will try and deliver. (laughs) Thank you, though. Thank you both for letting me come on here today. It's just been, it's been really fun. I've just, I'm trying to soak everything in like a sponge and just learn as much about the, the history of the sport. And you guys are just amazingly knowledgeable with it so i i've just been i've been almost sitting here quietly just in awe just like oh my gosh this is so cool it's like a lens into an era that i've always wanted to know more about jared where can people find you on social media youtube and all that yeah so uh my youtube channel is just the iceberg um if you just look up the iceberg nascar it should be the first thing that comes up uh my twitter account is at Ice Titan 80. I made it in high school. Please don't judge me. Um, <laughs> I, I, Iceberg was taken. Um, and then I am on Instagram. I'm the Iceberg underscore YT. Uh, and those are like the three main places that I'll, I'll be on a lot. Um, I'm, always, I'm always tweeting away. I'm always uh, putting something on YouTube, whether it's a community post or, uh, or videos. Uh, I, I think a lot of people listening might enjoy uh one of the community posts i do is that i keep track of the point standings from whatever the modern year whether it's 18 19 now 2020 uh but i use the old winston cup points format that was used from i believe 75 to 2003 yes sir i like it interesting yeah (laughs) i like it so yeah just if, if any listeners out there if you're interested just uh subscribe or follow and i'm you know let's have some fun with with nascar Good deal, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's awesome. Can't Otis let himself in like he used to do in Mayberry? <laughs> 
Jed, I don't even want to know if you know that reference or not. <laughs> I don't think I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's it. You're fired.